What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Oh my God! This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the Prince of Pro Wrestling, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. This is Jimmy Van the Boogie Woogie Man. Tell my people, my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on. On the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. The two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by the WWE Network. Head on over to wwenetwork.com slash TMPT and start your one-month free trial of the WWE Network where you can relive the entire Monday Night War from start to finish as the WWE battled its greatest rival in WCW. You can catch all the episodes of Monday Night Raw and WCW Monday Nitro on the WWE Network by taking advantage of our one-month free trial at wwenetwork.com slash TMPT right now. So get on over and do that after you're done listening to today's interview because if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, today on the show, we are taking a journey back 20 years 
And that is 20 Years of Hell as we are joined by WWE Hall of Famer and a key component of that Monday Night War, the one and only Mrs. Foley's baby boy, the hardcore legend Mick Foley joins the two-man power trip of wrestling in a a long-time built-up episode, something we have been waiting for. Mick Foley joining the two-man power trip to promote the show in in Buffalo, New York at the Helium Comedy Club today, June 14th in Buffalo, New York. You can go to buffalo.heliumcomedy.com for information on the show. It begins at 8 p.m. Mick Foley, of course, a great comedian, a great uh, man behind the one-man show, the wrestling one-man shows that there are today. Mick Foley, a, uh, a key original in doing that genre of comedy shows involving professional wrestling. But it is the 20 years of hell that we're here to talk about today. And of course, we know what that is. It is the Hell in the Cell from King of the Ring 98 as mankind battled The Undertaker in the second ever Hell in a Cell match that took place on pay-per-view, and we will never forget what happened as Mick Foley took the leap from the top of the cell through the announce table to the floor with the Jim Ross commentary on in the background. You heard it coming off the top here, something that as a wrestling fan you will never forget, and I equated it to almost the, uh, the JFK assassination because everybody knows where they were when they saw Mick Foley get thrown off the Hell in a Cell. And with having him on the show and getting to talk specifically about this topic, it was an absolute thrill for me. And John, as I welcome you in here now, I know it was an absolute thrill for you because Mick Foley obviously fits this show like a glove. We don't need to go over that. I mean, he covers all the great promotions that we talk about on a weekly basis, but also the connections that we have to Shane Douglas and the Triple Threat podcast. But being able to just talk about his biggest moment in his career was absolutely unbelievable. And looking back, I still can't believe it's 20 years since King of the Ring 98, but uh, it is. And now we get to relive it in this uh, 20 Years of Hell tour that's stopping through Buffalo, New York at the Helium Comedy Club tonight. Absolutely. And I feel like with the great Hell in a Cell match against The Undertaker, King of the Ring 98, I feel like sometimes, and I know he even says it in the interview, sometimes that kind of overshadowed his legendary career because he was a great, great wrestler in WCW, had tremendous matches with guys like Sting and Vader and Paul Orndorff and Kevin Sullivan and Nasty Boys and even Van Hammer, which we talked about in the interview. But not only that, in ECW, he was great. Japan, he made a great name for himself. Even before the Hell in a Cell match in the WWF and even after that, he made a great name for himself. Obviously, a former WWF champion three times over. But I feel like sometimes that almost overshadows his legendary career. But now it's great that he kind of came to terms with not just a great memory and a great part of his career. And if that's what people remember for him for, then, you know, that's OK, too. But, you know, he was such a great wrestler. He basically, and we talked about this in the interview, helps win the war against WCW after he basically wins the title on Monday Night Raw. Nitro never wins again. So, I mean, that's a pretty big stamp on the career. But when talking specifically about Hell in a Cell, we do talk about a lot of key moments, whether it's Jim Ross's commentary, whether it's chokeslam through the cage, whether it's going off the cage <laughs> onto the announcer's table, onto the floor, whether it's Terry Funk losing his shoes via chokeslam. I mean, there's so many great memories and moments from that match. I just remember always when people said to me when I was a kid, you know, uh, wrestling is fake. It's like, I'll show you one match and one match only at the end of this match. If you still think this is fake or, you know, these guys know how to land that awesome JR's, you know, his call, these guys just know how to fall. If you think it's fake after this, well, then they say, well, everything else is fake, but that match was real. Holy shit. Like, Oh oh my God, that was amazing. So it's just one of those things that all those matches always came up. It's like, man, if this, this, and this is, is bullshit, well, watch this. This is the craziest shit you'll ever see. And that was just an unbelievable match, an unbelievable moment of time. It's one of those things you will never, ever forget as a wrestling fan. you never forget where you were when King of the Ring 98 happened. It's just one of those moments, like you said, Chad. And, of course, Mick Foley will be talking about that. If you go to realmickfoley.com, you get a whole list of the tour dates because there's a little bit more ending in Pittsburgh, PA, at Mr. Small's Theater in excuse me at july 28th so i mean check that out as well if you're in the area of pittsburgh and shane douglas country but 
Today we're talking about the Helium show in Buffalo. If you can get tickets, you go to buffalo.heliumcomedy.com and check that out. Tonight, 8 p.m., you're not going to regret it. It's going to be a great show. They're going to talk about many, many things involving the 20 years of hell and hell in a cell. What a moment. What a show. Now, Chad, I, I know obviously the WWEnetwork.com slash DMPT recommendation is quite obvious, but I don't know. What do you what do you think? If you had to make a guess, what, what would you think my network recommendation would be? Well, we're talking about Mick Foley. We're talking about the 20 years of hell. We're talking about uh, a moment in time that we can't forget. We're talking about a period in the WWE that is absolutely unforgettable. So if I was going to pinpoint it, if I was going to really sit here and, and cram my brain, I would think that you're going to go ahead and talk about the finals of the King of the Ring tournament of 1998 featuring The Rock versus Ken Shamrock as Ken Shamrock wins the King of the Ring uh, prestige that night in, uh, in Pittsburgh. Is that what you were going to say? I was actually going to say, of course, WBNetwork.com slash TMPT network recommendation would be King of the Ring 98. You go to WB, obviously, pay-per-views. You go to 98, you go to King of the Ring, and you watch Hell in a Cell. Mick Foley, a.k.a. A Mankind, versus The Undertaker. Obviously, one of the most memorable matches ever in the history of the business. Also, just want to throw this out there as well. Steve Austin versus Kane is a great match in the main event. Not quite living up to The Undertaker-Mick Foley match, but it is still a great match nonetheless right and it features an absolutely remarkable run-in if it's even possible after he goes through the cell after he goes off the cell of Mick Foley coming out and taking a stone cold stunner or, or a choke slam I don't recall which one but he comes out at the end of that match in the first blood match with Austin and, and Kane and it's uh it's legitimately crazy that he was even able to have his bearings to get out there and, and get that done, and it's uh, it's a testament to the toughness. It's a testament to the uh, the 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 I don't know the the extreme nature of Mick Foley as a whole. And speaking of extreme, and we're gonna get it over to the interview now. We're gonna pair this interview with a, a a archived interview we had with Barry Blaustein, the director and the man behind be, uh, Beyond the Mat, which of course we know is what propelled Mick Foley into really the mainstream media as he was the guy in that documentary that absolutely captivated the audience. And we have an interview we did in 2016, January 2016, with Barry Blaustein. And we talk about, basically, it's, it covers a lot of Beyond the Map, but right smack in the middle, you're going to hear about Mick Foley and how Barry Blaustein introduced the world to the fourth face of Foley, and that was Mick himself. So you have Cactus Jack, you have Mankind, you have Dude Love. Well, now we got Mick Foley in the mix as well and please listen closely as if you hear all of our triple threat podcast episodes you would know mick foley would fit that show like a glove so listen closely to the little tie-in we have to the triple threat on today's interview and enjoy it because it was a lot of fun to do and like john said please take advantage of our wwe network promotion at wwenetwork.com slash tmpt and try that one month free trial you will not Forget to do that, I'm sure, because it's an absolutely amazing deal, but please take advantage of it. And John, as we get it into the wrap here now, let's get it over to this interview with Mick Foley. Hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business, and let's get it over to Mrs. Foley's baby Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter, at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, TMPTofWrestling.com. 
And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. Follow along with a two-man power trip as we come to a town near you. Join us in Richmond, Virginia for TMPTCon 2, May 19th at the Holiday Inn with feature guests Kevin Nash, Easy Eric Bischoff, Mikey Whipwreck, Mark Canterbury, and so many more. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, he is a WWE Hall of Famer. He is Mrs. Foley baby boy. He is a three-time WWE World Heavyweight Champion. He is also known as a hardcore legend. You may know him as Cactus Jack, Dude Love, or Mankind. He is Mick Foley. Enjoy. tonight is somebody who I am absolutely thrilled to be welcoming in here. I can't believe it's been 20 years since the subject we're going to be talking about, but that is just a part of the story. As joining us is an eight-time WWE World Tag Team Champion, a three-time WWE World Heavyweight Champion, a 2013 member of the WWE Hall of Fame, Mrs. Foley's baby boy, the hardcore legend, the one and only Mick Foley. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate the time. Uh, and I'm uh, making a trip from uh, <laughs> this is the old wrestling thing. I can't remember the city you're in. Where were we last night, Tim? Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, Minneapolis. And it sounded like a good idea to book those two together and St. Louis, but it's like a six-hour drive, and tomorrow's an eight-hour drive. So I feel like I'm back on the wrestling road again. <laughs> wow. You definitely know how to uh, to drive those miles, uh, without a doubt. We know your story, and we definitely want to dive into a piece of it here because you are on the 20 Years of Hell Tour, and this coming June 14th, you're coming to the Helium Comedy Club in Buffalo, New York, for an 8 o'clock show. And, Mick, I know you're traveling the roads talking about it every night. As a fan and as somebody who's watched your career, I cannot believe that it's been 20 years since that infamous Hell in a Cell moment where you came crashing down. But talking about it every night, is it kind of cathartic to look back on it in the way you are? Because this is an unbelievable milestone. Uh, yeah, it, it really has been cathartic to talk about it. Uh, I'm kind of finding out new uh, elements about the match uh, as we go. So it's, uh, especially because it's a match I kind of ran from for so many years and did not want to talk about. And then after a while, uh, I guess in the same way, like Adam West finally came to terms with the fact that he was Batman, you know, like I know there've been some other actors who've been like kind of pigeonholed and feel like want to be known for more than just that one thing. And then after a while, you're like, maybe this isn't the worst thing to be known for, you know? Um, so, so yeah, it has been really cathartic and, uh, I can honestly say these have been the, the, the most fun shows and, uh, the best shows that I've, that I've done. I hate to be so extreme in saying it, but it's almost likening it to the uh, to where it's like the JFK assassination. Where were you when that happened? It's like where were you when Mick Foley got thrown off the Hell in a Cell? Because for wrestling fans, I mean, yes, we had seen ECW at that point. We had seen the Attitude Era starting to take shape and see some more, 
you know, uh, more barbaric elements being added in. Obviously, if you're a tape trading fan, you saw all the crazy stuff going on in Mexico and, and in Japan. But to watch that for the first time live, and I remember watching it on pay-per-view in New Jersey and seeing you take that, that infamous leap. I mean, just from a fan standpoint, the ooh that came out of the crowd Unbelievable. I got to ask this. As you're in the air and as you're looking to hit that, that mark there, what is going through your head as you're about to hit that table? Um, you know, it's funny. I, I talk in the show. I, I only I only curse once in the entire show. It's like an hour. Uh, uh, it's like a two-hour show with Q&A and everything, and I curse one time. But it turns out that I think in curses, and uh, that's all I was doing was dropping F-bombs. To myself <laughs> before, after, during, and after that entire, what the blank was I thinking? You've got to be blanking, kidding me. And I was so glad when uh, Jericho's book came out, A Lion's Tale, and he talked about wanting to do something from the top, but he went up there earlier in the afternoon, which I didn't do. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. And he said, <laughs> the people down below look like ants. He said, I'm not exaggerating. They looked like ants, and I thought to myself, that's exactly what they looked like. So if I could have thought of a graceful way to climb down that cell structure without ruining my career, I believe I would have done it. You know, and it was obviously not a many Hell in a Cell matches going on at that point in uh, 98. Obviously, the Shawn Michaels-Undertaker one from Bad Blood the previous uh, October was the biggie, and for that to kind of, like, literally – trounce and stomp on uh, what that match had done, because Shawn Michaels took a bump from holding on to the cell and through a table, and it was like you were falling off the Empire State Building compared to, to what that looked like. And I know you've, you've said it many times watching that match. You thought about, you know, what is it that you could do differently? When you look back and you put the two against each other, even though that's only about six, seven months before, do you feel as if, you know, that bump that you took may have overshadowed the, uh, the Shawn Michaels one? Because at that point, too, Michaels falling from that height, that was a big deal in 97. All right. Well, the, the match that he had with Undertaker is still, to me, the best cell match we've ever seen there's ever been. And uh, I wasn't worried about overshadowing it. I was just trying to live. I was just trying not to embarrass myself, you know. Um, so I go into some detail. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to have a conversation that tells the entire show to everyone. Um, and I should <laughs> mention those tickets in Buffalo are going fast, man. You know, we've got uh, words getting around, and uh, it's actually taken a lot of pressure off my shoulders as far as having to do, uh, you know, morning radio and things like that. So uh, if, if this interests you, go out there and get them because they will be gone. And people are like, they went, they sold out so fast. I'm like, they've been on sale for five months. So if, some, if this interests people, please go out and get them because this show will sell out. Phoenix is not going to sell out. I'll be honest. Boston is probably not going to sell out. Uh, Buffalo will, and probably within, uh, you know, a week or so. Um, but so I don't want to get into the, the whole, I don't want to give away the whole, uh, the, the whole show to you guys. I got to leave something up to the imagination. <laughs> and of course that is buffalo.heliumcomedy.com for tickets. And I got to mention this cause you were talking about elements of the match and different things coming up. Jim Ross's commentary on that match has become almost like a, a thing onto its own. People attach it to so many different things. You ever just look at that and be like, you know, that's crazy. Jim Ross is, you know, is now like mainstream because of what he said in our match, which was totally real and totally authentic. Yeah, we're kind of uh, tied at the hip because of that night. Um, and it's gone on to be part of pop culture. And uh, I don't know if there's ever been a route in any <laughs> sporting event where someone hasn't thrown up the meme when someone stopped the, the damn match. You know, it's really uh, added so much to that match. And I think it's to help powerful ways to experience the cell matches without watching it all. You just listen to JR's commentary. It's, uh, it's, it's really extraordinary. And JR didn't know what was going to unfold that night. He said to bro, he undoubtedly would have come up with something great, but, uh, you know, that spur of the moment call, I'll put it up there with anything I've ever heard in sports history. You know, I've said that in my book and, 99, you know, you can have, uh, do you believe in miracles or the Giants win the pennant? In my mind, you know, he's been, with God as my witness, he's been broken his hat in half as good as anything I've ever heard anywhere. So good, so memorable. And it's one of those things you just you always think of when you, when you think of that match. And another thing, you know, thinking of is 
that cage falling through when he gives you the choke slam and the two through the nose. And I know you said it before, you were kind of surprised at the, and obviously there were some curse words going through your mind as you're, as you're heading down. Does anything ever shock you looking back like, wow, I can't believe I went, not only went through the table, but then go through the cage, then my tooth is through my nose. Anything like shock you looking back at that stuff? Well, you know what, uh, when Undertaker surprised me uh, by coming to an event in uh, Austin and we reminisced about that match and how it should have been kind of a <laughs> – the, the future should have been foretold to us when we – saw the the mesh ripping and twist ties shooting off the cell. Like I remember vividly thinking, I don't recall any twist ties when Sean Michaels was up there. So, uh, <laughs> you know, granted I was heavier than Sean. I wasn't that much heavier. The structure should have been giving way. Uh, but that, like I said, maybe that was uh, a harbinger of much worse things to come. Such a uh, memorable moment and such a crazy, you know, bump so to speak, uh, that you were taken there. But something that, that is so weird and so funny to me that I always remember, and that's when Terry Funk gets involved and Undertaker literally chokeslams him and his shoes pop off. I don't know if, if that's something that you always think of when you think of that match. Yeah, I, uh, I go through that in pretty vivid detail. I really, you know, I, I hate to say listen to the show, listen to the show, uh, but it's, I can't I just ask people to trust me that it's quite an adventure I take them on. And I do go through the shoes uh, coming off, and uh, it's one of the best parts of the show. Uh, and so, uh, like I said, like I, I can't give you all the stuff here. Uh, and in this context, it wouldn't sound as good uh, anyway. But I do, uh, when people get there, you know, we, we really recreate that, that night on stage, and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty special. I don't brag about much that I do. I believe I have the best penmanship in the business, uh, and I believe I have the ability to take uh, fans on quite a ride from the stage, uh, and that's about it. Got to love uh, that match and that moment. It's so great, but I want to just mention The Undertaker for a second and almost kind of, you know, you always say what you did, or excuse me, what he did for your career, and he kind of put you over. I look at it the opposite way. At that point in time, Undertaker, especially when you first started feuding with him in 96, he was kind of not becoming stale, so to speak, but he was almost coming like, okay, what can he do next? Who can kind of revig- uh, you know, revitalize him, revigorate him? When you started feuding with him, I became so interested in that feud because of you. You were like the, the guy that really kind of brought Undertaker back. Can you just talk about your relationship and your kind of um, great chemistry that you were able to pull off with a guy like The Undertaker? Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, he was so invaluable. I can't even tell you where my career would be would have gone. Uh, I believe at a certain point I would have been cleaning pools had it not been for The Undertaker. And by the way, we're about to pass Ames, Iowa, where I dropped the uh, WWE title to Triple H less than 23 hours after winning it in Minneapolis. Pretty historical. I may have to stop and snap oh, wow. a photo of the Ames <laughs> sign. Um, but, uh, yeah, we did have – we had great chemistry right away, and uh, it turns out – no secret, especially if you've read uh, Jim Ross's book, Slobberknocker, that uh, Mr. McMahon was not a fan of mine. Hold on, I really am going to put you on speaker here momentarily. And now while we're talking, I'm going to go to my camera. This is the beauty of the uh, smartphones. <laughs> Developing in real time. Oh, wait. Oh, we got another one coming up. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Yep. All right. Ames, Iowa. Here we go. Hold on a second, guys. This is history. I'm not driving, by the way, so this is uh, <laughs> the great Tim Sullivan here. Uh, he's a heck of a wheel man. All right. All right, I'll post that in a few minutes. Um, I, it's just um, I really believe Undertaker stepped up and, and uh, voiced his opinion that, you know, he was tired of wrestling guys who by and large were just thrown in there because they were bigger than him, you know, taller than him in the case of Giant Gonzalez, heavier than him in the case of, you know, several opponents. And, you know, like, of course, there was a great match with Bret Hart thrown in the mix, and every now and then there was an exception to the rule. But by and large, his feuds were with guys who uh, were bigger than him. And I think he just realized he had gas in the tank. And uh, uh, he and I knew each other from traveling together and, 1990, and I think uh, he'd seen some of the stuff I, I was capable of doing and thought that I could uh, engage him uh, psychologically. And, uh, you know, I, I say one of the main takeaways for everyone who goes there is that never, 
never underestimate the power of the undertaker. Absolutely true. And, and at that point, you know, the man kind of character, the gimmick, the mask, the music, when you're feuding with him in 96 was great. And then obviously when you feud with him in 98, it gets even better and, it, and heightened. But I just had to mention quickly uh, just about your kind of stamp on the business and, and your career. I wanted to mention, like, the, the Monday Night Wars were so big. And obviously the three, three faces of Foley, uh, Mick Foley, uh, Mankind, Dude Love, Cactus Shack. All the, all the three phases of Foley, but when you win the world title and you kind of change the game and you basically win the war, because after you win the title, WCW never wins again. You just talk about kind of having that kind of impact in wrestling. I don't know if everyone realizes, like, you kind of can put the stamp on it that you're the reason why uh, WWF never looked back. <laughs> that might be an oversimplification. <laughs> might, might be giving me too much credit. But, um, yeah, certainly it was a huge night, and it was a night where um, – uh, WCW, by all rights, should have had a major victory. They were in front of 48,000 live at the Georgia Dome. We are in front of seven or 8,000 taped at the Worcester Centrum. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Eric Bischoff gave the word to Tony Schiavone to, uh, you know, have a spoiler. And there was the famous line, you know, that'll put butts in seats. And I guess about half a million people simultaneously uh, switch channels, and uh, so it should have been a big victory for WCW. Turned out to be a really big victory for WWE, and probably on a personal level, uh, the biggest victory of all for me because I, I believe it changed the way that I was seen within the business. You know, from that point on, the idea of scoffing and saying something like that'll put butts in seats was seen as being ridiculous. Um, I'm really happy they went there. I have thanked both. Tony and Eric, personally, for helping make that uh, such a good night for me. Uh, because, you know, even with the title victory being uh, dramatic and the great crowd reaction, uh, a really emotional scene, if they hadn't advertised it to their fans, uh, I believe they would have had the big victory and it would not have uh, been nearly as important in the larger scheme of the Monday Night Wars. Definitely, and you're right there in the middle of the Austin Rock feud, and then you become you know the, the champion, and you start feuding with the Rock. So cool, and you can literally you can look at the at the wins and losses for Nitro. Uh, they only won once because there, there was no Raw in that week, but they never won again. So <laughs> you can say, hey, you're the reason. You're you were you were the star. You're the you're the guy. <clears throat> okay, I won't say it, but you can. Uh, it sounds better <laughs> when you say it anyway. Now, think, just thinking back to your career, I know asking you about favorites and favorite matches is probably like impossible because there's so many great things. Just for me in my head, when I think about you, I always think of just great matches. Uh, Paul Orndorff in WCW, Vader in WCW, uh, Sting in WCW. Obviously, so many good matches with Triple H, especially at MSG and WWF. But one that really sticks out to me is, how the hell were you able to have such a good match with Van Hammer? No one else ever had a good match with Van Hammer. <laughs> hey, you know, you take what you have, and uh, he was very athletic, and he was willing to listen, and he was willing to trust me, and uh, that was enough. You know, other guys, you know, were you know they were limited by their uh, you know their minds. I think, you know, there was you know some stuff where he took some chances, and I took chances and paid for it. Uh, um, there was one, you know, one move in particular where he came off either the top rope or the second rope and I wheeled around and hit him with a clothesline. And, uh, I was just looking at the score, you know, the scoreboard, you know, I could see on the screen, I could see him coming off and he was trusting in me completely. And, uh, you know, and I, and, and you know, and I, I hit him pretty good across the jaw and, um, and that was a, a, you know, that was a price he was willing to pay. You know, I really, I had a series of good matches with him only because I tried and, and knew that I could, you know, I was really used to working around my own weaknesses and that, you know, that, that was like a way of life for me. You know, I, I took a uh, dirty Harry Callahan's uh, man's got to know his limitations words to heart. And, uh, I knew hammers limitations, but I also knew his strengths and I, uh, and I really played to them. So, yeah, it made me look like Houdini. <laughs> I, was, I, looked like, I, like I was pulling a rabbit out of my hat. But the truth is, he worked really hard, and he was a good athlete, and he had a really good attitude, and he was willing to listen. And the Van Hammer versus uh, Cactus Jack collection coming to the WWE Network uh, very, very soon. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. But also, 
Before we get into the big plug here, uh, Mick, to, to talk about 20 Years of Hell coming to Buffalo, we got to mention on air, we do a show with the franchise Shane Douglas every week called the Triple Threat Podcast. We have been lobbying to get you onto that show for months, for absolute months. We've heard the stories. We've heard all the travels. We've heard the early days of Mick Foley. So this is really cool to tie it into the 20 Years of Hell. But I just got to say, you know, with uh, doing a show with Shane every week, it, it's always very interesting Give us one anecdote about a young Shane Douglas that you remember from meeting him the first time. <laughs> well, you guys don't have to lobby. I, I would love to do Shane's podcast. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, and I think Shane's really good and interactive on Twitter. You know, a couple times I've encouraged people to, to, to follow him. Uh, you know, one of, it's, there's two different sides of this story. I believe I was following Shane's lead. I don't believe that I thought I was too good to wrestle in the opening match, but maybe collectively Shane and I thought we were too good at the opening of the card. <laughs> we had a little ego even in 1986. We knew we were having great matches, you know, and Dominic liked us to set the tone for the rest of the card, whereas maybe we thought we should be, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the semi-main event or something. So, I'll just say collectively we decided to have car trouble and uh, <laughs> instead pulled over at a place called Cactus Jacks right in Clarksburg, West Virginia, which is the home of my first ever match at the Clarksburg Armory and uh, home of uh, the late Tony Nardo. And we shot a couple games of pool, showed up midway, <laughs> midway through the card. Dominic was fuming, didn't buy our car trouble excuse for a moment, immediately asked for a receipt. Uh, and I believe he may have made life difficult on us the next couple of weeks at the gym. Dominic was not somebody to, to mess around with. But, yeah, uh, Shane Douglas and I, with uh, I think Shane had two years of experience and I had one. Although we made a pact with each other, we were going to pad our totals by two years. And we just decided, <laughs> like, I'm not a two-year veteran, I'm a four-year veteran. And Shane wasn't a three-year veteran, he was a five-year veteran because we thought that would look better, you know, to prospective uh, employers. And to this day, you know, uh, some of the articles say I started my career in, in 1983 instead of 85. And uh, once you get up at past 30 years, it doesn't seem to matter very much. But the difference between two and four years of experience, you know, that was an eternity. So uh, I can say, you know, I, I was so happy that, you know, I, I only mentioned a handful of people that my uh, – Hall of Fame induction speech, and then, and then I went on at the end to name several others, but I had like five people written on my fingers, literally took, you know, a Sharpie and wrote five names, and it was, you know, uh, Dominic, um, uh, Snuka, uh, Undertaker, uh, Shane, and my family, and it was really important for me to mention Shane, because uh, I think his contributions have been overlooked, and I probably haven't given you know, enough credit to how much he did for me when I was, uh, you know, those first few years of my career. Yeah, that's well said. And he, uh, he definitely, he loves doing the show. He loves telling the stories. We had Dominic on uh, a couple of weeks ago, looking back at uh, Bruno San Martino's career with Shane. And that was a lot of fun. So yeah, obviously we'd love to have you on down the road, but we know you are a busy, busy man. And you're on well, this well, listen, 20 I've years. Got, yeah, I've got, I've got to go, but where do you guys uh, tape that? We just do it every single, we do it every Monday. We just record on Skype and we just, uh, you know, we shoot the breeze. Yeah, because I'm going to be in, uh, you know, the last show of the tour is in Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, I'm thrilled to say that one's sold out. And uh, it's going to be the last night, 20 years to the day. And uh, I'd like to get to Pittsburgh, a day, you know, a day early and, and visit with Dominic. And uh, maybe uh, we could uh, do a podcast, yeah. uh, bring, the, bring the family together and just uh, reminisce Absolutely. about some of the old times. And it's June 14th in Helium at, in Buffalo. Buffalo.helium.com for tickets. And uh, we appreciate you, Mick. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, you got it. And I think uh, for those listening who might be in the New York area, the Tri-City area, uh, we're also in um, Poughkeepsie, uh, either the 14th or the 16th. And uh, there's still some tickets left for that one. So just go to realmickfoley.com. And uh, thank you for the time and the plugs. Appreciate it, Mick. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. All right. Have a nice day. Quite frankly, what we've come up with is since you are able to regurgitate, you know, on command, um, <laughs> it, it just seems to me that, that, that it's pretty logical that you should be puke. It's all supposed to be fun. The Rock is 
the most electrifying man in sports entertainment today. It's not supposed to be real. <laughs> You're not going to be scared, right? It's going to be okay. You can go on Back to the Future. You can do anything. Right? Right. But behind the scenes, it's a whole different story. I hope everyone feels like they got their money's worth out there. And for the first time ever, you'll know the real truth. He's got a puke! He's got a puke! He's got a puke! It is showtime! The real danger. Shut up! I'm a very violent person, and I'll hurt you. So I get paid to what I'm doing. It's like any entertainer. Come face to face with the wrestling world the way it's never been seen before. Gave up Wall Street for Wall Street wasn't fun. Wrestling is fun. It's still hard after all these years. We did it! I just don't want to hurt no more. This is the damn Beyond the Mat. I think we touched a lot of people, yeah. if you don't mind me saying. Right, and it's funny with Draws, we saw that play out, that whole gimmick of, you know, the regurgitating on command, and, right. you know, to then dial back to what you had filmed, it had come out a few months after Draws had debuted, and you're like, all right, and you kind of see that they've got, they really did have something in mind for this guy, and that when you can highlight such a personality trait, such as uh, throwing up when told, uh, you can see right. how that can make a lot of money, but then on the other hand, when you say that Edge was one of the guys that was, you know, a possible subject, he really went on to be the biggest quote name out I of know. those three. I know. And to think where Which, that could have gone, starting at your front door, basically. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes I go, oh, I should have gone with Edge, but he he was he was uncomfortable with cameras following him. So I don't I don't know how good he would have been on camera at that point. You know. And then what do you think about the way they had their training set up from what you saw at that time, 97, 98, 99, versus what they're doing now? And essentially having a weekly beyond the mat in their show Breaking Ground where they show you the trials and tribulations of their developmental system on the WWE Network. I like, I like that show. I mean, it's very reality showish for my taste and a little too, you know, life and death and William Shatner and, you know. <laughs> So, a little shoving it down my throat, for my taste. I, but I like that show. I like the show, and I think uh, Paul or Triple H. I, I, I never called the wrestlers by their wrestling names. I, I shouldn't start now. <laughs> I think Paul's done a <laughs> tremendous job doing creating that NXT. And he's another one, you know, brief cameo in Beyond the Mat, and it's you know you could really. You could go through who's who of if you watch those scenes where you. Oh yeah, oh, I, I spent I spent a lot of time with him, and uh, doing the documentary. Right. And he was very cooperative and very friendly and very, very bright and intelligent. And I'm I'm not surprised at all at his success out of the ring, at all. Uh, it's great to hear because he's really ascended to the <laughs> B spot within WWE under the man himself, Vince, and it's funny who he was subjected with in the, the movie, China, Joni Lauer, uh, where yeah. she's completely gone in the opposite direction, where you highlighted her in such a way as her being this unique character in a world of these giant men, Well, you've got this giant woman who is this physical specimen, and her life has really, unfortunately, taken a turn for the worse and has just kind of become a train wreck, you know, uh, on a rail going straight off the yeah. side of a cliff, and that's unfortunate because you're part of the documentary. It's very It's very sad. I spent quite a bit of time with uh, Paul and Joni, and a lot of time time with Joni, and I liked her quite a bit. And so it's it's sad to see what's happened. I can't explain it, so I don't know. I, mean, I haven't seen her since the documentary came out. Uh, but I wish it's, it had um, It's it one of the, the, heart the of weirder stories. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's unfortunate. And, you know, people we've talked to have said the same thing, and we've had her on before, and it was just, you know, it's just very weird, but it kind of paralleled, in a way, Jake the Snake, who I'll get to in a minute, but I want to stick with the, you know, the WWF, WWE guys. And like I said in the intro, right. 
you really opened up the door to the fourth face of Foley, and that was Mick Foley. We got to know Mick Foley, the person who we would then grow to love on television as the genuine Mick Foley character himself, whatever you want to say. He just came off in the movie as such a lovable man and just with a great family value. Mick's you know, a tremendous just, Excellent. You know, and, tremendous have you kept guy. in contact with Mick? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we see each other once once or twice a year whenever he comes out to LA, we get together. And I uh I met his daughter the other day. Oh boy. <laughs> I, I hadn't seen since she was little and crying. And well, I was like, I'm sorry I portrayed you that way. <laughs> um Yeah, Mick and I stay in touch and you know Terry Funk. I've I haven't spoken to Terry in a couple, in a year or two, but we usually speak every once in a blue moon. Yeah, it's uh, Noelle Foley has really uh, you know she's uh, older now. Obviously, she's uh, really got a, right. a career blooming for her. She's got a great personality and uh, destined to do some great things. But yeah, as a four-year-old or a three-year-old uh, ringside at the Royal Rumble '99 and. How can we forget the chair shots and uh, this movie star, <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Uh, what was yeah. it like putting that scene together uh, that night and also you know, while you were doing the editing? Well, very hard. You know, Mick, I was, we had two cameras, two different camera crews at that time for that shoot. And one was in the arena capturing um, Mick's wife and the kids. And the one was backstage. And I was with the crew backstage and I talked to my uh, line producer Deborah Simon I said how to go out there and she goes it was pretty bad it was pretty bad and I, and I saw Colette walk back with uh, no and uh, she was very distraught very distraught and it was it was hard it was very hard because the son Mick lost it too I wish I cut out a movie it was Cutting that was very hard to cut simply because I didn't want to seem like I, I wanted to show it, but I didn't seem there's a point where I'm going, I'm exploiting these kids. And I didn't want to feel like I was exploiting the kids too much. So that was a very tough scene. And, you know, I have a very dark sense of humor, and usually I can make jokes about anything. Uh, but that was, I, I could never watch that stuff without feeling incredibly uncomfortable. It was it was very hard to watch because the match was much more brutal than anybody expected it to be, including right. the participants. Oh yeah, it's quite powerful. Just even if you isolate the match itself, uh, you know there's stories of uh, maybe Rock went into business for himself and took a few more chair shots than he was supposed to. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like you know Rock and uh, and McFoley seem to have a decent relationship, so you kind of hope that's not the case, but. As the match goes on, it just, you know, it's indicative of 1999 professional wrestling. That would never happen right. in 2016, no. but that was 1999 for you. Did you feel like, you know, the crowd was buzzing? Did you feel like The Rock was feeding off the crowd that night? I think so. I think when you get under, the, you know, in the, in the moment, you might go, you know, you might lose track and you might go, I'll do one more. Um, I know guys, I know what it was like watching it backstage, and there weren't, nobody was going, this is great. They were just going, uh-oh, now it's been pushed, the level's been pushed of violence and pushed up more. So if you look at the backstage shots, and I think just there's just one or two, there's concern on their faces. They're not, they're not going, this is great, can you believe that spot? They're like, uh-oh, this could... We have to start doing this to get pops. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's really, it's almost like it's... I mean, I, I look how crazy it was. I'm glad I filmed it back then because it was always, you know, cinematically, it's more powerful that way. But right. um, I look back how violent it was. And in um, especially the ECW stuff. And you're going, this is crazy. Yeah, and again, it's, you know, 1997, 1998, 1999, professional wrestling versus 2016 sports entertainment, where if you were to look for that ECW today, you know, you're going to get a more 
uh, chain wrestling based or a more, uh, you know, driven for the work aspect of it, then the blood, guts, violence, ladders, chairs, you know, the uh, just uh, ridiculously uh, obscene chair shots to the head, which have virtually gone away. Uh, you'll still see them. I can't say you won't, but uh, ECW, it's another part of the film that is just, when you look back, it's such this piece of history Right at our fingertips is oh. you're with ECW and the journey to their first ever pay-per-view. Right, right. I met Terry Funk in Las. I met Terry Funk in a show in Las Vegas, a local show he was doing. And I met him years ago, early in my career when I was starting out. And uh, he said, "You got to go to ECW. You're going to love this place." And I'd heard of ECW, you know, in the in the, the rags. But I never, you know, I didn't see it because I was being out in Los Angeles, and I went to a match at Philadelphia, and I went, "Oh God, this is gonna, this will be great for the movie." <laughs> you know, I knew, I knew it was so colorful and so violent, and so it was like being in the middle of a Rocky Horror Picture Show screening. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, weapons yeah. being brought in, uh, the cast of misfits, uh, which were they were they would call themselves that they were the misfit toys that nobody wanted. But there's a scene in the movie that has really gone on to define ECW, and that's Paul Heyman's speech on the country. steps at the ECW arena. Take us back to that night and what you could oh, see off oh, the faces. It was amazing. He's a mesmerizer. I've seen him give a speech once before at a, at a, at a house show. Then I'm going, this is incredible. I've got to capture one of these. And that night he gave a speech. A speech is in the movie is maybe 40 seconds. But it went on for about three, four minutes. And uh, that's why I said you could rule small countries with his oratory <laughs> skills. <laughs> you know? But it was, it was, you know, I just kept on, please, please don't have my film run out. Because that, that part was shot on film, not video. And it was also so it was shot like, much earlier than the Royal Rumble, about two years prior. Yeah, about two years prior. So one of the first things we shot was ECW. You know, and at that point, ECW hands. was a cult favorite with the guys who would go on to define a generation of hardcore and be reborn about five or six times. And did you think that ECW had that long-standing power that it just keeps coming back every couple of years? Yes, yes. I, I, I thought when I was there, I thought, this is the future. This is cutting edge. This is so much more in sensibility of where society's at, you know. And it was at a time when the WW, that time the WWF was doing, you know, Doink the Clown and, you know, those kind of characters. More cartoony stuff. Right. So, this seemed a lot more real. Oh, yeah. And I remember, I remember being with Vince and going, we're never going to do stuff like that. We're never going to do stuff like that. And by the time I started filming there, they go... What happened to they're never going to do stuff like that? <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. And everybody uh, ended up kind of taking that ECW style. But, you know, let's kind of talk about the filmmaking part of it, if we can. And, like, you know, like sure. I said, it's done over a few, you know, year period. When you set yeah. out to make it, is that what you had in mind, was to cover it from different aspects and maybe have to take a couple years till you got the story right? Yes. Well, I spent, I, I spent about three years making the movie, filming the movie. And part of that is because I traveled around a lot with guys because I, I was wanting them to feel comfortable with me being around them and and getting them to be natural and not turn it on for the cameras. And also, in a weird way, I was casting the movie. I'm going, who should I follow that's interesting? Who would be interesting? And who, you know, already, I ha originally the idea was just to follow young wrestlers trying to make it. But the problem is, is that young wrestlers don't have the stories and the experience that the older guys have. And the one guy I was going to follow who hadn't made it yet made it in the course of making the movie before I got my full funding, who was um, Matt, uh, Matt um, Heisen, who became Spike Dudley. Right. So, yeah, but I always planned it also to to gather around the reaction of their families to doing it, because that fascinated me about what was it like coming home 
after being on the road pretending to be something and how you could adjust to normalcy and it was a normalcy and how could you forget Matt Heisen aka Spike Dudley's most prolific part of the film where you know, you're discussing <laughs> what he was doing prior to becoming a professional wrestler where he's talking about being a Shakespeare major while blood is trickling down his face, into his eyes, down his nose. And as, you're, as a filmmaker, as somebody you know, who did primarily comedy and you know, really this being so much different than what you had worked on prior, did you ask yourself, right. you know, what have I get myself into as I'm talking Shakespeare with a guy with blood trickling down his face? No, oh, when that was happening, I was actually having a hard time not laughing because I'm going. <laughs> I, I said, Matt, this is. A, I remember when we cut the cameras. I said, Matt, this is like out of Monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, no, I didn't. Have, this is what I really wanted to do. You know, I'm I'm proud of. I have certain feelings about stuff I've done in the past and all that, but when people ask me what am I proud of, it's always beyond the mat, by far. Got to be. It's got to be up there because, I mean, like I said, it really it changed the way wrestling is viewed and it and really inspired a generation of uh, documentarians uh, who want to cover wrestling specifically. It might have even yeah. remotely inspired two yahoos that have a podcast that interview wrestling personalities <laughs> Every so often, uh, but as I say, it's kind of funny. I told John uh, I had to mention this before we went on the air. Beyond the Mat was the first ever DVD that I owned before I even had a DVD player. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but like when I was little, I bought my father's pipe rack for Father's Day because I saw it on Leave It to Beaver, not knowing that my dad didn't smoke pipes or anything. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, you know, it's quite, it made quite the impression, you know, but not to also mention that some of the films that you've made as well and contributed to in writing uh, have also made quite a, uh, a pop culture uh, impact as well. And, I mean, there's so many on there that you look at. I mean, Coming to America, uh, The Nutty Professor. I mean, I know there's a lot of Eddie Murphy in there and Boomerang, which is another oh, one sure. I laser disc, which I'll definitely throw out there. But just, you know, talking about working with the actors, and writing a movie versus then working with wrestlers who, in their own way, are actors, you know, and putting in their own way, they're actors too. Well, when you're writing a film, and when I'm writing a film for Eddie Murphy, because I, I know Eddie since Saturday Night Live, I do work with him, so we interact and all that stuff. But otherwise, when you're writing other movies, you don't interact that much with the actors. When you direct, you do. Um, when I, the way I approached wrestler, the wrestlers were this. I said, uh, this is, everything about wrestling is either, is it fake or is it real? Is it fake or is it real? Or it's condescending. Um, you know, what comes up must go down. Oh, these, it treats you as clowns. And I will treat the business and what you do with respect because I really like it. I respect what you guys do. And so that was i think i and that's why i hung out with them a lot because i wanted them to see that i really was had a, i had a respect for what they did a tremendous amount of respect and i do have a tremendous amount of respect for what they do i love it when i watch a, a movie uh and there's a wrestler in it playing a non-wrestling role and someone goes that guy's good i go yeah it's a wrestler i was watching uh i i'm now divorced but I was watching my girlfriend, uh, Spring Breakers, the other day, which is a great movie. Oh, boy. Great movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's a small part of a of a, a preacher, or a, not a preacher, a guy who runs a religious seminar. And it's Jeff Jarrett. She goes, who's that guy? That guy's good. I'm going, he's a wrestler. <laughs> so, <laughs> whenever anybody does real well, and it is, I, always, I always root for the wrestlers to do well. Spring Breakers uh, could be a podcast onto its own, but uh, we'll save that Great for uh, the two-man power trip of movies uh, yeah. for another day. But, you know, it's it's interesting, to say the least. My wife and I just watched it quite recently as well, probably the same night. But uh, it was uh, it's interesting. But I'll, I want to just move on because there's something else that's kind of sure. funny to tie in. Yeah, obviously, you're right around Saturday Night Live, uh, which, you know, in the pantheon of television, Saturday Night Live is in a class. By itself, but, you know, when tying in Beyond the Mat, The Rock 
has hosted Saturday Night Live countless times yes. and seen the personality really came to the forefront when he hosted the first time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was really weird. That was the same weekend that Beyond the Mat opened. Oh, wow. And I begged, I begged the studio, let's take an ad on Saturday Night Live. Even a 15-second ad. The Rock's hosting, it's going to be the perfect melding of our audience. Right? And they said, no one's going to watch The Rock on Saturday Night Live and so on and so on. So I think they didn't want to spend the money. And then the ratings were through the roof. Right? It was like the highest SNL in a couple of years. He was great on that show. But again, as a wrestling fan, as wrestling fans, were you surprised he was great on that show? Didn't you know he was going to be great? No, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but also then to throw they in Mick Foley, the guys show. are performers. They're great performers. And that doesn't mean they call, you know, some overact and all that stuff. And some of that's the style. I mean, what Vince does, he, he overacts, but that's the style that he's performing. That's his performer is an overactor, um, is a, of a hammy owner. But he pulls it off perfectly. No one can play Vince better than Vince plays Vince when he's on the show. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.